morning. On Wednesday, we had Ash Wednesday, we began the season of Lent. And throughout church history, Lent is the season of preparation to prepare for Easter, to prepare for this great event in history that Jesus died and rose from the dead. The thing that happened in history where our sins are forgiven and we have the opportunity to be adopted into the family of God. What a great reason to celebrate. And sometimes Lent can be kind of confusing because maybe you've heard people say, oh, the 40 days of Lent. But then you actually went and counted the number of days and it's 46. Super confusing. But the reason is because Lent does not include Sundays because every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. So that's why there's 40 days and only 40 of our daily um, practice things to listen to, which is interesting. But we prepare ourselves to remember what Jesus did in his sacrifice, to take an assessment of ourselves, and we have to prepare because throughout the year we can kind of slip into taking it all for granted, taking it for granted what Jesus has done. Well, this might be a rather shoddy example, but if you think about Easter as the greatest celebration in the year, and you think about other things that we celebrate throughout history, you know, when a king is coronated, what do you do? You know, when there is a wedding, what do you do? Well, you have a feast. You make all this great food. You do all the things that you only do once a year. You gather everybody around and you celebrate. And so Easter should be like that. It should be this great feast with all kinds of amazing food and people gathered and an exciting atmosphere of celebration. But here in Denver, here's the possible reality for you. Every day, you go to the Old Country Buffet and you eat whatever you want. You are at the buffet and you can choose as much food as you want. You can choose the things you like. You can choose all that you want to eat. And that's just your everyday life, right? Anybody doing that every day? Maybe not at the country buffet. But you think about that. If you're eating at the country buffet every day, and then this great Easter festival comes along, and this feast is put in front of you, how do you feel? Eh, all right. Just another day, another meal. Thanks for the Easter feast. You know, I kind of like the meatballs on the buffet yesterday. You know, there's like a disappointment, right? Because every day you're having a feast. And so then the great Easter feast comes along and it's, you know, just another day. But in contrast, what if every day you're eating crackers and spray cheese? It's all you're eating every day. And then the Easter feast comes along. Then how do you feel? You are amazed. You're excited. There's just this great sense of celebration in that. And so in this way, the season of Lent is preparing us to celebrate Easter. You know, it's a, it's a preparation of taking a break from all the abundance that we enjoy, taking a step back from those things in order to appreciate even more the sacrifice of Jesus. You know, and Jesus gave us a unique example. You know, when he was about to begin his last three years of life and ministry, first, before he began, he went to the desert and spent 40 days fasting and praying. And so we can imitate our Lord in that activity. 
by taking 40 days to prepare, to step back and to appreciate, and then to celebrate Easter in a worthy manner. A common word around Lent is penance. You know, this word penance. And penance is anything where you are self-denying yourself by choice so that you can draw near to God. You're choosing to not participate in something in order to create space in your life for God in that time. And so traditionally, churches participated in a few penance activities, prayer, fasting, almsgiving. And those are activities we're creating space in our lives for God. Many of you showed up Wednesday for our Ash Wednesday service where you had the ashes put on your forehead and you heard the words, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. And isn't that the self-assessment we need to take in order to prepare, to get this true assessment of ourselves, who we are, and the reality of life, but also to get a true assessment of Jesus and his sacrifice for us, the cost of it, and so we can see those things in reality and appreciate them. Well, for Lent, we have chosen this series theme, The Confidence Paradox. The Confidence Paradox. Do you know what the confidence paradox is? Or maybe even before that, do you even know what a paradox is? Because I grew up in Wisconsin, and I always thought a paradox was two docks out in the water. But that's not the paradox we're talking about. We are talking about paradox as the literary form where there are two ideas that are in conflict with each other where there's a statement that has two ideas in it that both can be true, but not at the same time. So and a good example of paradox is jumbo shrimp, or bittersweet, or my favorite church growth statement of paradox. Well, if the church grows, no one will want to come. Think about that one. Well, what is this confidence paradox? And I just said, that conf or just said that paradox is two ideas smashed together that kind of don't fit. But confidence is only one word. We need to dig in first to this idea of confidence. So looking at the dictionary definition of confidence, Merriam-Webster defines confidence as a feeling of one's powers or of reliance on one's circumstances. Cambridge says it in a little different way. The quality of being certain of your abilities or having trust in people, plans, or the future. So confidence is this feeling of one's powers. Confidence is this quality of being certain of your abilities. There's the confidence paradox is that it's about a feeling. Certainly, when you think about your feeling, yeah, there's a source to those feelings, and sometimes your source is true. You know, yes, you have skills and abilities, and you're drawing from that to have confidence. But other times, we just make it up. And we have self-confidence, and it's based on nothing. And it's a sham. So, the confidence paradox is the strangest thing. Maybe you've heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect. And I hope you've only used this in positive ways in talking with your friends and coworkers. But this phenomenon was first observed back in 1999 um, by a couple of psychologists, David Dunning and 
Justin Krieger, Kruger. And uh, they first got this idea, the spark for this concept and this thing that they then later observed and tested. They got the idea from this guy named MacArthur Wheeler. Maybe you know about MacArthur Wheeler because he robbed two banks. And in robbing two banks, it was actually kind of unbelievable, but he thought that because um, lemon juice can be used as invisible ink, that if you just put it all over your face, lemon juice all over your face, the security cameras cannot record your image. <laughs> this sparked something for Dunning and Kruger. And they're like, what is going on? How is this possible? Well, they kind of did some research and some clinical studies to figure this out, and they gave a whole bunch of people little quizzes. And so they took a 10-question quiz and then asked them after, you know, how do you think you did on the quiz relative to other people? And what they found out is that poor-performing people on the quiz evaluated themselves much higher than reality. And people who did well on the quiz, they evaluated themselves less than they actually did. So here's a chart. You can think about this. So you get one right out of 10. And you're asked, and that's reality. But they ask you, you know, what is your perceived ability compared to the others who took the quiz? And you say, well, you know, I, th I think I did pretty good. I mean, I might have got a couple wrong, but I think I'm about, compared to everybody else, about a 60%. Right? That's a little bit of a not accurate assessment. But in the same regard, if you got a 9 out of 10, your same assessment of yourself, you're saying, ah, you know, I know I got one wrong or two wrong maybe, so compared to others, well, maybe they got all 10 right, so maybe I'm like at a 75%. And so this is the fascinating Dunning-Kruger effect, that low performers overestimate how well they did compared to pe other people, high performers underestimate. And the bottom line is that we all think we're about average in life. We just kind of have that self-perception. And that is the confidence paradox, that we view ourselves in such a way that our feeling is that we're about average. You know, our, throughout history, this has been true. And there's some good historical quotes um, about this Dunning-Kruger effect. Confucius, a Chinese philosopher, once wrote, real knowledge is to know the extent of one's ignorance. Kind of getting at that. And Shakespeare wrote in As You Like It, the fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. Kind of that effect happening. And even Charles Darwin acknowledged, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than knowledge. Isn't this strange? And even in the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, where you're hearing a lot about wise and fool, um, talking about this effect that happens. That the wise fear the Lord and shun evil, but the fool is hot-headed and yet feels secure. Or later, 17, even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. Isn't this interesting, this confidence paradox that's happening throughout history? So this is the confidence paradox. That confidence is based on a feeling and that feeling is based on a source that can be either true or false. So if you think about this chart, where's the paradox? 
It's in that true or false coming together and our feeling about it. That we just kind of make up how we feel in our self-confidence. And if you are anything like me, you know that in that feeling space, feelings come and go and change and are moved by the slightest of winds. You know, self-confidence is kind of like the weather in Colorado. You know, it just changes unexpectedly. You know, right now in this moment, I'm feeling confident. You know, things are going well. I've got stuff going on that I'm happy about. The project is going smoothly. But in the next moment, you know, I get a flat tire. Devastated. I go to the dentist, and he tells me I have to floss more. Devastated. I go and I get home, and my kid had to go to the principal's office. Oh, what a bad reflection on me. Devastated. Get sideways with my wife. Devastated. You know how self-confidence goes. It's going along, and boom, 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 it changes. So, what do we do with this self-confidence? Perhaps you were here last fall when we talked about the character David in the Old Testament and the Bible. And David's life is just this interesting example that shows us self-confidence. And we talked about the confidence paradox back then. We talked about David going up against Goliath. If you remember, here's Goliath, this person with incredible self-confidence. You know, self-confidence in his armor, his physical stature, his skills and experience, his success record in the battle. He has self-confidence. Whereas David comes in, and who is David? David's this little guy. He's small, he's young, he's inexperienced, he has no armor. He only has a sling and a rock to go up against him. It is an example of no self-confidence. But in that moment, in that story, we find out that it's not about self-confidence. For David and for us, it's about God-confidence. So I'd like to consider these two things this morning. Self-confidence versus God-confidence. So for self-confidence, I can get all kinds of ways caught up in my self-confidence, you know, the things that give me confidence, you know, skills, abilities, you know, other people giving me accolades, success, you know, all those things can, like, boost my self-confidence. But you know what? Self-confidence is a lot more like the hamster wheel of life. You know how this goes? You get on that hamster wheel of life of self-confidence, and you always have to reach and grab the next success. You always have to be reaching out to take hold of the next achievement. You always are reaching and grabbing and pushing and striving to keep the self-confidence wheel going. And if you stop, what happens? It all falls down. Because self-confidence is propped up by these temporal, experiential, performance-based things. And if you stop doing them, self-confidence falls down. This feeling of self-confidence goes away, because it all depends on me. All depends on me. Now, please hear this, because I don't want to throw self-confidence out the door entirely this morning. You know, there is a self-confidence that should come through life and growth and maturity, where you are gaining experience and wisdom. You know, you think about the book of Proverbs, encouraging us to grow in wisdom. Yes, that is a good sense of self-confidence. 
But self-confidence is not our primary place of confidence in this life. Because self-confidence always depends on me, always depends on my strengths and my abilities pushing it forward. You know, if I'm winning or losing, if I'm feeling good or if I'm feeling bad, all those circumstances are driving self-confidence. That's why here in this Lent season, we take this time of preparation. Because we do not want another year to go by where we don't stop and pause and acknowledge It's not about me. It's not about my strengths, not about my gifts or talents or how amazing I am. It's about God. And I acknowledge his blessing to me in that. So, self-confidence, we need to set that aside in order for God confidence to take priority in our life. Now, you think about God confidence. God confidence, different chart. God confidence still has feelings. Right? And your feeling about God confidence can come and go, it can wane, it can fluctuate. But the source for your confidence is God. And God does not change. God is solid and secure. God is faithful. God will keep his promises. And so, because God is solid, there is no paradox related to God. There's no paradox in him because he is secure. The paradox is still in our feeling, our feeling and our experience of that. And so we need to work through and understand our feeling part of that. A great place to go related to God confidence is Romans chapter 8. Paul wrote this letter to the the church in Rome, and he wrote these encouraging words. And he said, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, if you just like grasp that phrase right there, and anytime your feeling of God confidence is is wavering or fluctuating, just remember this phrase and bring it to mind and say, if God is for me, who can be against me? You know, if God is for me, what can be against me? And let that phrase, that guide your feeling rather than what else, whatever else is influencing you. But here's the reason why we can be so confident in God. Paul goes on, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Good Friday. And how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You know, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, Easter, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God is dependable. God is a secure source. So we don't have any paradox with God. But the paradox comes in our feeling. 
Paul wrote this in a different place in a letter to the church in Corinth when he wrote, for when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, Paul was talking to them about, you know, here's a thorn in his flesh, you know, this trouble that he was having, and he asked God, will you take this away? And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. He didn't take that away, but instead God gave him grace in that difficult thing. My, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's the paradox. Because when Paul is weak, you know, when Paul can't figure things out on his own or kind of through his clever ways think through how to get out of a situation or, you know, through his experience and ability solve it, when he is weak and he cannot go forward, that's when he is dependent. He depends on God, and in that moment is when God shows up with his strength. That's when there is space for God to show up with strength. Have you experienced that kind of paradox of when you are weak, then he is strong? You know, I have experienced this quite a few times because I have a huge self-confidence in my ability to move heavy objects. I just think that I have a clever mind that uses lever and wheel of a strong back that can manipulate those things and make it happen. I just am confident in that. Maybe there comes a little pride because, you know, I don't want to ask somebody else to help me. You know, I don't want to bother somebody else with my thing. I just want to do it myself and get it done. Well, just a couple weeks ago, we were, Susie and I were working in her office, changing her office up a bit and taking out this big old metal desk, and uh, I brought my hand truck, and I was getting it out of there. You know, there came a moment when I just needed a third hand, and God only gave me two hands. And this is what I had to do. I had to yell out, help, help, which is actually code language in Susie and I's marriage for, hey, Susie, come quickly. I've gotten myself in another predicament where I've done something that I can't do myself, and I need you. You know, and Susie came and got that desk out, and it was simple. But do you see how strength is multiplied when I said, help, help? Strength is multiplied because I'm only dependent on myself. What can I get done? But when I call for help and get someone to help me, together we're even stronger. And then you even imagine the greater multiplication that happens with God when we say, God, help, help, and we let him move into our lives and give space for him to help us How much more strength do we have because we're doing it with God? Well, the whole point of this Lent season is to call out, help, help, before you have to. To call out before you're in that predicament. To call out of your own volition and to be proactive about it. Because the reality is we are all in need of God. We all need him we can kind of get into this place of life where things are going along well and I'm doing okay and, you know, I got this. I don't need help. But the reality is, whatever position you are in life, you need God. And to open yourself up to him proactively before you're forced to. The bottom line is it doesn't matter how much confidence we have. You know, what matters is what we're putting our confidence into. You know, you think about, isn't it better to put your confidence, however small it is, 
into the right thing rather than putting your great amount of confidence in the wrong thing. You know, just think about putting your tiny bit of confidence into God compared to putting your massive amount of confidence into yourself. You know, this is the time of year back in Wisconsin when cars start falling through the ice out on the lakes. You know, I grew up around a lot of ice in Wisconsin and crossing ice. What do you think is more important? Your confidence in the ice or the thickness of the ice? You laugh. My super-duper confidence, thinking that, oh, I can get across that ice. You know, I'm on this side of the ditch. I want to get to that side. That'll be enough ice. My super-duper confidence that I can kind of slide across and get over there. You know, when the ice is too thin, and this is true, the ice breaks, you fall through and get wet. No matter how super-duper confident I was, I could get across. But I also remember bringing people out onto the ice who've never been on a frozen lake before, you know, to like go do donuts in your car and things like that. Um, they were terrified to go out on the ice. They had no confidence in that ice, that it's going to hold up a car. They were terrified. And here's the reality. In Wisconsin, in the middle of the winter, the ice is like two feet or more thick. You know, out on the Cranberry Marsh, we would literally drive dump trucks full of sand out across the ice. That's how strong the ice is. And the bottom line, it has very little to do with how much confidence you have. It has everything to do with the thickness of the ice. And so isn't God like that in being the two feet thick ice in our lives? The source that is strong and solid and secure that we can put our confidence in him. And it doesn't matter how much confidence we're putting into him, but in putting it into him, he is strong and will follow through. You know, placing your confidence in God requires moving a little bit of our self-confidence off to the side and putting God in that priority position to look to him for our confidence, that God is able. And that's what Paul was saying when he said, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Acknowledging that when I am weak, that's when there is space in my life for God to be strong and to show up. And this is the solid fact, that God is able. I want to remind you this morning that God is able to roll away the stone 40 days from now on Easter. God is able to forgive. God is able to give grace. You know, God is able to give strength to weak hands. God is able to make the lame jump for joy. God is able to give hope when there's only despair. God is able to bring light into darkness. God is able to do far more than we can ever ask or imagine. Our confidence is in God who is able. So these next few weeks as we lead up to Easter, I want to challenge you to put God in that priority position as your confidence. You know, every morning when you wake up, will you put your feet on the ground and say, good morning, God. I am going to do this day with you, you and me together. 
So whenever I go out, God, when I see somebody, I'm going to look people directly in the eye and I'm going to say, I'm confident in you, God. When I talk with people, I'm going to use words of kindness and love because, God, I am confident in you and I don't need to worry about how that comes across or, you know, the nuance of everything. I'm confident in you. And when you are going out and you bump into a worry of that day about money or whatever, to say, God, I am confident in you because I trust in you. You know, whatever trouble you face and the thing you can't figure out in your day, to stop and say, God, I'm doing this with you. And I want to figure this out with you. It's me and you together, and we can do this. So before we pray, come to the communion table, I encourage you to take a moment to set aside your self-confidence. Whatever strength of your self-confidence stands in the way of God-confidence being in that priority position, to set that aside and to put God-confidence first. Maybe it's on the other side where you are lacking confidence, where you are feeling vulnerable, you feel hurt, you feel disappointed, perhaps you wish you were someone else, tempted to compare yourself to someone else, feeling not loved. And whatever lack of confidence you have, to also bring that to God and say, God, I want you to be my confidence. Because God is saying to you right now, I want to be that solid thing for you. I will be with you. Right where you are, who you are, whatever you've done, wherever you're going, I love you and will continue loving you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want an encounter with you this morning. That reminder to set aside the things that stand in the way of you in our lives. God, we want to get off the hamster wheel of self-confidence, just propping those things up, and instead be secure in you, standing solid on firm footing of your foundation. God, help us make a true assessment of ourselves, and help us make a true assessment of your sacrifice that opened up heaven's gates so that we could be adopted into your family. God, we go with you in this through your grace. Send us out. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, at this time we come to the table of communion and we remember here the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed when he gathered with his friends and he took bread from the table and he gave thanks for it and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat in memory and remembrance of me. Then in the same way, after supper, he took a cup of wine from the table and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in memory.